All right. Well, we're going to go ahead, though, and get dive in today into God's providence. And because we're doing it in one lesson, uh, there's more that could be said about the providence of God. So I'm going to go to our next slide. Uh, just some introductory uh, thoughts regarding this as we kind of work our way uh, towards a definition of providence that's given by Wayne Grudem. So if God is creator, now pause there. That's because in Wayne Grudem's book, the previous section was God is Creator, the doctrine of God as the Creator. So if that doctrine that we've already taken a look at, now it's been several weeks since we took a look at that, uh, because of Easter, we didn't have uh, Sunday school. Prior to that, I jumped out of order and did a lesson on the the atonement of Christ. Um, And so then go back before that, and we had God as Creator. but if that's true, that God is creator God, okay, that stands to reason, like you just would logically conclude that he also preserves and governs his creation. Now, that might be something you logically conclude, but there are those that do not conclude that. Um, specifically, we'll get to one of them in a moment, uh, the, the thought of deism uh, concludes something different. But... Um, it would uh, be consistent, um, or at least maybe it would be a logical guess that you would think that uh, if he's the one that created things, then he's going to be active in that creation. But what we're going to see in the scriptures is that that's actually true, that he is active. Okay. Um, the uh, Come on, you can do it. There we go, okay. Uh, the next um, point on here, understanding and accepting the biblical doctrine of God's providence helps us to avoid four common errors. Well, that's one of the reasons for uh, Bible study, that as the Bible tells us, the scriptures are able to make us wise, and that specific verse I'm thinking of, that I don't even know if that felt like a quote to you, but in my mind, I was quoting a verse, but it actually is specific to salvation, it's able to make us wise unto salvation, Uh, but the Bible indicates that uh, knowledge of the Lord is um, knowledge of the scriptures, knowledge of God himself is able to make us wise. Okay? And of course, wisdom is just being able to properly use whatever knowledge that we do have. And so I'm hopeful uh, here then that, that this would be the case. Um, the better we understand this doctrine of God's providence, the better able we are to draw right conclusions that also may lead to right behavior. And uh, behavior generally follows thinking. So if you have wrong thinking, you sometimes have wrong behavior because your, your actions, your behavior are based upon uh, thinking. And so um, I had one, uh, someone ask, it was actually as a former pastor who asked once if I was growing. I had a hard time with that question, to be honest. Growing spiritually, he was asking. Uh, and he was asking as a direct result of something specific. But I have a hard time with that. Just maybe it's my logical or my analytical mindset. It's like asking me after I eat a hamburger, do you felt that the hamburger helped you grow? Well, I know theoretically it did, but I mean, I didn't actually notice any growth directly from the hamburger. So, um, you know, if, if there was something specific, let's just say it was like a sermon, did that, okay, did I necessarily i mean sometimes you have things where it's automatic you can feel that you grew you something big but sometimes it's i just heard something i already knew did i grow i think i believe i did i you know there was maintenance uh, perhaps or perhaps growth in some way i feel like growth you know you, you sometimes don't notice if you're growing until you you actually compare it to something that was a while back so it's like you know what one year ago i was an inch shorter now of course i'm not growing anymore um, but when I was a kid, we used to have the little marks on the wall. And you'd actually, you couldn't see yourself growing at any point in time. But then you'd go up and do a new mark and say, oh, look at that. I'm taller than I was, you know, six months or a year ago. And uh, spiritual growth, uh, sometimes I feel that way too. It's like, okay, did I, uh, has there been major growth recently? Sometimes over time, you look back and say, well, I understood this and I grew in this way compared to what I used to understand or the way I used to think. And so I would, uh, this is a side thought, I'm rambling a little bit, but I'm thinking to ourselves, maybe we come to Sunday school, uh, maybe we could be encouraged that we do that, because I think 
So it's like eating food. You don't, you don't say, well, I'm not going to eat this if I can't tell if it actually does something for me right at this moment. No, no, I, I know I need this food over time to maintain my body, and, and when you're younger, even to grow in size. Um, but even now, we, we grow, and they grow new skin cells, grow new hair, you know, all that. Well, maintenance of our spiritual condition through regular exposure to right thinking and, and scripture and, and all of that can encourage us that this is what's needed to be healthy uh, spiritually, and even if you can't detect it on a given Sunday, like if you don't walk away today saying, wow, I really grew, because Mr. Maddish was just such an incredible speaker, such a teacher that I just felt myself wow, blossom, and you know, as a Christian, it's probably not going to happen that way most often, even with incredible speakers, um, world-renowned Bible teachers. I doubt every time you hear them, there's something like that. Uh, and so I would encourage us uh, this morning that I think our understanding of this can help us avoid things. We may not even realize always that we've maintained that thinking. Or if we have wrong thinking this morning, maybe this will encourage us uh, to think differently. Uh, but this can uh, help us avoid problems down the road. Uh, sometimes we don't always realize that we have a problem in thinking. Sometimes life events come up that bubble up to the surface some underlying thought we had that we hadn't really stopped and thought about. Um, sometimes it bubbles up and we don't realize it's a wrong thought. And then we take action or we do something that really isn't in line with Scripture. Okay, another little side note. Sometimes biblical counselors, that's the, uh, the advantage of biblical counselors. Whether that's a pastor as a biblical counselor or there are some out there who are professional biblical counselors. Um, it can be a, a great resource to come alongside someone who's thought through certain issues really clearly and has, and has a, tried to embrace Bible teaching on a concept that maybe we haven't thought through, and we can get their help. So um, I think there's been times in society where if you went and saw a counselor, the thought was, what are you, a nut job? You had to go to a you know, shrink, head doctor? What's wrong with you? Okay, Normal people don't need that kind of... But I, I think society's gotten a little more accepting of the idea that sometimes you need to go and get advice, and you need counsel. And sometimes you need to do that with someone who is um, um, not, not so personally involved. Like you, there may be something you want to talk about, but you don't necessarily want to talk about it with pastor because of the personal relationship with them. Maybe you go. Maybe you get go talk to a, a pastor of a like-minded church somewhere else, who you feel like you can be more confidential with. Um, those types of things are legitimate. Okay, like I said, that was a little side thing. Let me not do too many side things, or we'll never get done with this lesson. Okay. All right. So hopefully this will help us avoid problems. What are those uh, problems? Four common errors that can be countered by uh, this. <clears throat> we'll just go through these uh, somewhat quickly. Uh, the first one is deism, Oop, okay, and, hmm, oh, I remember, okay. See, I have sometimes a conflict between the way I set up PowerPoint for the online versus in the class, and um, anyways, it threw me off there for a moment remembering some differences. Okay, here are the four. We're going to look at them one at a time, so I, I forgot how I separated them out for the online group. Okay, so deism, pantheism, randomness, and determinism. So we'll go to the uh, first one, and if I, okay, and I don't have this where they're going to pop up the right way, I wish it would just pop up, but it'll emphasize them one at a time uh, with being underlined and in bold. So what is deism? Teaches that God created the world, and then essentially abandoned it. That is, he stepped back and he's not directly involved in it that much. But what we're going to see as we look at the doctrine of providence is that that's not true. Now, of course, it's, it's an underlying assumption here that we're looking to the scriptures as our guidance for what to believe on this topic. And if someone rejects the Bible as authoritative or rejects the Bible um, as the source for what we believe, uh, then this is not going to be that convincing of an argument. Uh, but Bible-believing Christians are, are looking to the scriptures as God's revealed word, Therefore, what has, does God want us to understand on these topics? Um, so as we look at God's teaching on providence, 
uh, we'll find that deism isn't true. Okay, so what about pantheism? Okay, pantheism teaches that the creation does not have a real, distinct existence in itself, but is only part of God. Okay, so not separating the two, but that's not true. God is the creator who created things, and then separately from that, he is providentially overseeing, governing uh, the creation that he created. Okay? So then we have randomness. Okay, um, Our next one. Uh, randomness is the idea that events in creation are determined by chance. And so we'll see also that that's not a true thought, that things don't just happen by chance. That book that I mentioned that I'm tempted to maybe do at some point in Sunday school is entitled Not By Chance, Learning to Trust a Sovereign God. So we'll see that uh, the scripture teaching on providence um, is not a, it counters this idea of randomness. And then our last one of the four, determinism. The idea that events in creation are determined by personal fate. Now, there is an aspect of this that um, Christians could end up thinking and following, um, if not careful. Um, Especially if uh, someone was of the Calvinist persuasion could think this way. Um, Now, I've uh, mentioned before I'm not that tempted to uh, use labels like Calvinism or Arminianism that much. I mean, I, I might use them in reference to uh, teachings in those kind of schools of thought, uh, but I'm not that tempted to adopt a label for myself, uh, either one of those. Um, but um, I will say that those that are Calvinist, and I'll make a little confession here, I lean that direction. Okay, But those that are Calvinists, there's a wide range of them. And some of them might fall to this, that if God, you know, embracing the teaching of the sovereignty of God, well then if, if God is sovereign and makes choices and things, well then I don't have any choice. He's going to be able to do what he wants to do. And, and I can't stop him. I can't, I can't change that. So it almost doesn't matter what I do. It's just like predetermined. Uh, someone could have that thinking, and um, you see a verse in the Bible that says that what? Shall we con- continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, may it never be so um, that way. Some could say, well, like, you know, whether I sin or not, you know, that just gives God an opportunity to, uh, to be glorified in that. So it almost doesn't matter if I sin. Maybe it's a good thing that I sin. Maybe God can be honored with that. Uh, some might say, well, it doesn't matter if I sin cause, uh, or not. It doesn't matter what I do because God's going to accomplish what he wants to anyways. Or, you know, someone uh, holds to or understands, um, you know, God's elect. Well, if the God's elect are elect, oh, then it doesn't matter if I witness or not. Now, um, I will say um, in Baptist circles, I think there's, um, including ours, there's a mix of, you know, a whole wide range of Calvin, Calvinist and Arminianist um, positions. And I think a lot of Baptist churches like ours actually don't fall squarely on one side or the other and end up being a little bit of mix of both. Um, and so um, it's, we're not going to solve those issues of today, but here's one of them that could be there. But I'd I do say um, sometimes those that are Arminian accuse Calvinists of, hey, if you're Calvinist, then this is going to happen to you. But um, that's not really, that's too much of a blanket statement. It's too much of a stereotype uh, to just say that across the board. Um, be interesting. I'll read you some of the quotes from Wayne Grudem in the book I'm using, who would use the word Calvinist to describe himself. He, he leans that way, anyways. But you'll see in some of his quotes, that he is careful not to come to wrong conclusions, such as this one. Okay, well, I don't want to get off on those words too much more. Let's go to our next slide and uh, start uh, looking a little bit more at some of the teaching in the scriptures on this topic. Okay, so rather than the concepts behind those four things that we just looked at, the Bible teaches that God is the infinitely 
uh, powerful creator and Lord who is actively and personally governing his creation. And this statement that we have here, we'll look at verses in a little bit, but you can see in this statement uh, here um, things that counteract those four thoughts. For example, on deism, where he steps uh, back. Well, if this definition is accurate, and this is what the scriptures teach, uh, it says he's actively and personally governing, which is what deism says is not happening. And so deism would not be true if this is true. Okay, how about pantheism? Creation and God are basically one, not separate. And um, the creation is God, and they're, they're intertwined. Uh, well, this is saying that God, as the creator, is governing what he created. It's, they're not one and the same. Randomness, uh, or uh, that things are not by chance. Uh, they're actively governed. It's not just left to chance. God's actively involved. And the determinism... You know, this impersonal fate. Well, God is personally governing. Now, we'll get uh, to some thoughts here. Well, what about man's free will, man's choices, his personal choices? But the thought here would be that our personal choices still matter, even if they are under God's sovereign rule. Um, So we'll come back to that thought a little bit more on this determinism, which I think is the one that might be uh, the greatest uh, struggle uh, for us. Okay, so we go to our next slide, uh, Providence Defined. And now this is how Wayne Grudem uh, defines it. I would like to um, mention um, one uh, way to describe it or define it that comes from the book Not By Chance by uh, Leighton Talbert. Um, because um, in my mind, it's, it's kind of an, an easy way to remember a certain aspect of providence, and that's to look at the word Providence, providence, provideo. Okay, now the the prefix pro uh, means to uh, happen ahead of time, and video is like a video to see, is what it means. So there's an aspect of providence that means this: God sees ahead of time what the need is or what needs to go on, and then He does it. He pro-videos. And so he sees the beginning from the end, and he governs it all and sees it all and and knows what he wants to accomplish, sees everything clearly. And so that's an aspect that might uh, be helpful to us. Uh, So I just throw that out there. Um, But let me come back to Wayne Grudem's uh, definition here. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. We'll pause there. So he gives examples in there. Like he, he, conti- he maintains the universe. Okay. Water continues to act like water. He uses birds as an example, but I'll use our dog. Our dog continues to act like a dog. It's not always good. <laughs> as when he was having problems with after his tail amputation swallowing bandages it's like dumb dog don't swallow bandages he's such a long and flexible dog that with the largest cone known to man it's like a satellite dish and we even at one point large cone with a small cone inside of it and a big inflatable donut behind his head could still not keep him away from his tail um and so and he was quick about it sometimes where you turn your back and five minutes and he'd have that thing off his tail and swallow it he swallowed i don't know how many of them six seven eight five okay five yeah dogs act like dogs you know water acts like water the universe operates you know laws of gravity and energy does what it does matter does what it does He maintains this. He governs the universe. That's an aspect here. He keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. But it goes on to number two here. He cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Uh, So he's not just uh, um, holding things together, but he's also directing in that. Uh, Now, sometimes God will step outside of what would be the normal properties of what he's created 
and do something miraculous. Like it's not normal for someone like Jesus to be able to walk on water because water doesn't have that property of something that heavy standing on top of it and not sinking through it. So sometimes he does miracles outside of that, but frequently what God is doing is he's cooperating with that. He's, he's operating and directing things within his creation in, uh, with consistency with, with how he has created. Okay, and then it says, number three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. Okay? And so essentially, God is governing, God is preserving, uh, God is overseeing what's going on, and he's directing, and he's accomplishing what he wants to accomplish in this. These are all aspects of God's uh, providence. Now, the way that um, Wayne Grudem um, <clears throat> categorizes this on our next screen, there's three different aspects of providence that um, he mentions. So he uses three words. Okay, the first word is preservation. God is upholding all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. So we'll use this as one of the verses in the Bible that teaches this particular uh, concept of God preserving things, upholding them. So this is going back the definition we read on the previous slide. What we're doing is we're looking at that definition and we're going to talk about it with three specific words. The first one being preservation, that he's, he's preserving or upholding. Now, upholding in the Greek, I had to make sure what was visible on the slide there. The first point under that, what does this word upholding mean? Okay, point number one, something being carried from one place to the other. So the word is used in various spots in the New Testament when something is being carried around. Uh, for example, when uh, some people took a, a lame man on his bed and carried him to Jesus, uh, this Greek word uh, was one that was used to describe that when they carried him. Okay, so something being carried around, so uh, from one place to another. So then the second point, uh, now that we have that in our mind, it carries the idea of active purposeful control over the thing being carried. Such as that lame man did not carry himself from spot to spot. Something else carried him and supported and actively was involved in carrying something else. So this is also the, in the progressive tense. So shake out the cobwebs. Go back to high school English. Did you learn the progressive tense? Come on, ongoing thought about that? Is, it, is that? is that an ongoing thought you have about the progressive tense? Let it keep going. <laughs> so I'm just joking here because that's what the progressive tense is. It's an ongoing action. Okay? This is an ongoing action. So in the Greek, you look at the progressive tense. By the way, it'd be like, for example, I ran, past tense of ran, something that happened in the past. I could say, well, let's make it present. I run. Okay. But progressive would be, I was running in the past, or I am running. It's, a, it's an ongoing thing. So this is an ongoing, you can't see it in English necessarily, but in the Greek, it's an ongoing action. This is something that God is, go, is continually doing. He's continually upholding. What is he upholding? Uh, well, what is he carrying? What is he supporting? All things by the word of his power. So... Uh, this is a verse that teaches us this idea of ongoing preservation. Uh, Grudem puts it this way, God keeps all thing, created things existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Here are some verses on our next slide uh, that um, support this. Hebrews, oh, actually we already did Hebrews 1.3. Uh, Colossians 1.17, by him all things consist. And Acts 17 verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. And so we, we don't exist outside of God. Um, we depend upon him. Now whether people recognize it or not, even non-Christians, whether they recognize it or not, the creation is being held together by God and is being maintained and continues to exist uh, by him. Here's another uh, verse on our next slide. Okay, from uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. 
Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is in therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worship, worships thee. Okay? So God preserves them, he upholds them, he maintains them. Okay, so Grudem uses another word besides preservation, and that's the word concurrence. So on our next slide, um, he describes this as God cooperates. So now, now concurrence, uh, I don't know how much you're into your uh, parts of words, prefixes, meaning things like that, but the word con means together, okay, or if you habla in espanolin, uh, con is with in Spanish. Um, God cooperates, concurrence. He cooperates with created things. They come together and, and work together in some way. Well, let me read the whole description here. God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. So not only does he preserve them, and he's, he's maintaining this so this actually still continues the way he created it, but he's working with the creation for things to operate the way that they do. Now, this is really, um, uh, Gruden points out, is an aspect of preservation, um, our second point on the slide. But he says it this way, God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Um, there's a number of verses in the Bible that support this. I haven't put them in our slides, but I'll just read them. Uh, he does this in a number of ways. For example, in Job uh, chapter 37, he says it about things in creation that aren't alive. Uh, Job 37, verse 6, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. So God's directing nature to do what it's doing. It's following the way he created it to be. Okay, then uh, he does the same with animals. Psalm 104, verse 27. Uh, talks in verse 27. Uh, well, actually, in previous verses up through 27, talks about a couple different types of wild animals that look to God to provide them for food. They receive what God gives them in verse 28. And when God opens their hands, they get good things from God. In verse 29, okay, and when God withdraws his favor in verse 29, they get disappointed. They, they, they don't have what they need. And even to the point of if he withdraws the support for them to be alive, takes away their breath, they die and return to the ground as dust. And so God is maintaining animals. Or we might be more familiar with Matthew 6, verse 26, when he says, Behold the fowls of the air. And he says, Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And he says, Consider, in verse 28, the lilies of the field. And they're not working to, to be able, you know, to, they don't have jobs and go out and support themselves, and yet God has arrayed them in beauty and cares for them. Okay, or what about um, even seemingly random or chance events? We know uh, some, uh, Proverbs 16.33, about lots being cast in the Bible. Sometimes uh, they would do that. And you would cast lots, be like us rolling dice. But the outcome is from the Lord. So even in that chance event, he directs. Or how about human affairs? In Job 12.23, mentions that the Lord makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges nations, and he leads them away. So God directs some nations to prosper, other ones to not prosper. He's Even in human affairs, Psalm 22.28, he rules over the nations, it says. And so those are just some examples, uh, but that God is ruling in different events, 
things that are alive, not alive, humans, non-humans. Okay, and so uh, we'll continue on our next slide here. We're still on concurrence, but our next slide uh, mentions God. So here's a description he, uh, Gruden gives. God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. It's an aspect of preservation. Actually, you know what? I, this is the same stuff I've already read to you. Okay, what it is actually is the second printing of it where I have more notes um, on this. Okay, um, and it's actually I know what it is. Um, it's the last one I hadn't got to yet. What is the relationship between God's providence and evil in the world? If He's directing all things and evil is part of His creation, uh, you might ask the question: Does God cause evil? Um, now that's not the same question as. Is God responsible for evil, or is he the source of evil? This is a a very tricky question to answer. In fact, I'm going to go ahead in my notes. I don't know where it's at. I hadn't originally planned on saying it at this point, but I'm going to go find it really quickly if I can. And it's towards the end, I think. If I can't find it quickly, I'll just paraphrase it for you, and then I'll read it later when I actually get to it. Yep, I thought it would have been right in there, and probably because I'm scanning, I'm not able to find it, unless it's back over here. Oh, yeah, okay, actually, it's right here. Okay, this is what Gruda mentions now. In spite of all the things that we're about to talk about, we have to come to the point where we confess that we do not understand how it is that God can ordain that we carry out evil deeds and yet hold us accountable for them and not be blamed himself. Or let me just say this. There's an aspect of this I don't think we're going to fully understand and no one does. Now sometimes man attempts to. Does God cause evil? Again, it's not the same as saying, does God do evil himself? But does he direct, in some way, evil to happen? Well, let me read some verses uh, here regarding this. Second, just as some examples, by the way, there's many of them. Second Samuel 12, verse 11. Speaking to King David. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them unto your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Goes on to say in the next verse, and again, the anger of the Lord, actually not the next verse, sorry. That was chapter 12, verse 11. In chapter 24, verse 1, in similar fashion, it says, And again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So he moves or directs David to do something that's a sin, to number the people. In verse 10, so nine verses later, King David says, after feeling guilty for what he done, he says, uh, admits to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, yet the Bible says that the Lord moved him to do it. <laughs> and this is one of those, I was going to use the word paradox, but then I got to thinking, am I using the right word? But this contradictory, is that the right word, a paradox? Yeah, okay. My wife, I turned to my English teaching wife and have her confirm that for me. Is it possible that the Lord directs in sinful events and yet he himself is not sinning? Well, here's the fact. The scriptures teach this. Um, when We've already studied a number of things about the character of God. God cannot sin. It's, it's totally outside his character. He cannot do it. Um, it's inconsistent with who he is. So that thought has to get our mind that God w- would do something that's wrong. So 
what what then's going on here if he directs David to sin, but we know that well he can't have sinned though in the direction of that. How is this possible? Well, let me read a few things. Um, God brings about evil, but the evil is not actually done by God. So that's one aspect of what we have. God did not actually do the sin. Okay, He might be directing and controlling in it, but he doesn't actually do the sin. Okay, He brings about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures. In other words, David willingly did this. And there's no excuse made for David. David makes no excuse. Uh, some people want to make excuse. Well, if God's directing it all, then it's his fault, not mine. I couldn't, I mean, I can't resist God. I can't, I can't stop him from doing what he wants. So it's not, not my fault. It's God's fault. Um, some would want to maybe do that. But the scriptures never blame God for evil or show God is taking pleasure in the evil. And the scripture um, never excuses human beings from the evil they do. So there's no excuse for David here. He sinned. It was wrong. He shouldn't have done it. So, however, we understand God's relationship. If we're going to understand God's relationship to evil, we must never come to the point where we think that we are not responsible for the evil that we do and that God takes pleasure so forth in it. That's contrary to the scriptures. Uh, One other aspect that we're aware of. Is that a raised hand? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, which comes to the the second the second thought here after that. God accomplishes good in the midst of man's evil choices. And that's an example um that you mentioned here regarding 2 Samuel. Um another um one of the clear um examples in that the book not by chance um spends a whole chapter using it as a case study, is the life of Joseph. Um, And uh, there's many other examples, but in Joseph's life, Joseph's brothers were wrong in their jealousy. They hated him, wanted to kill him, mistreated him by throwing him in a pit, sold him into slavery, and yet later, Joseph could say this to his brother. So these are all the evil things his brothers did to him. But later, Joseph says in chapter 45, verse 5, Be not grieved, speaking to his brothers, nor angry with yourselves that you sold me here as a slave, speaking of Egypt. For God did send me before you to preserve life. So God used their evil choices to accomplish something very good, to preserve life. And then he goes on to say in chapter 50, verse 20, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And so God, yes, he uses evil, but he uses evil even as he is righteous. He does what's right. He does what's good. Um, Now this is part of that thing that we're not going to fully understand is how does God do this it's hard to wrap your mind around because God sometimes says I'm going to send evil and I'm but he's not the source of the evil but he's going to direct it um, it's it's what we know to be true by the way I think a great example of it is Christ's death on the cross the greatest gift he gave to mankind, the greatest blessing, the, the greatest act of love, yet was accomplished through evil. The evil acts of uh, people on Christ to crucify him when he was innocent. And all the hatred that went with that. And yet God accomplished great good. Um, so, But let's not conclude that evil isn't real. We can't say, well, well then it was okay. Uh, we can't even conclude that with um, Joseph, where he says, 
to them, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves. That's not a way of saying, oh, what you did was actually a good thing. Thank you. You did a good job. Good job on that anger and that hatred and selling me into slavery. That was actually a good thing. Um, he might have wanted them to, you know, I mean, come to a point where you're not sitting there torturing yourself over that. You did what was wrong, but ask for forgiveness and recognize that God did great things with it. I think that's more the attitude uh, that should be uh, gotten from that. Um, let's not excuse evil. Evil is real. It's not an illusion. We should not do it. His brothers should have never done that. And yet God used that to accomplish what he wanted uh, to accomplish. It's always harmful. Okay, And so then we get to that statement. In spite of all the foregoing statements that we just went over, we have to come to the point where we confess that we do not uh, understand how it is that God can ordain that we carry out evil deeds and yet hold us accountable for them and not be blamed himself. We can affirm that all of these things are true because Scripture teaches them, but Scriptures do not tell us exactly how God brings this situation about. And so um, we have to keep straight certain things. God doesn't do evil. And yet somehow he brings about evil through the willful choices of men. He knows it's going to happen. He even directs it to happen. God was not at the mercy of evil people to accomplish his plan. For example, what... You know, God, was he at the mercy of the Jews to crucify Christ? That was going to happen. It was, wasn't just foretold, it was preordained. I don't know how that works together. That's what I think Grudem is mentioning. I, I don't know how that works exactly, because he's not the author of the evil, but he worked to use it. And it was going to happen. But we've got to be careful that we don't have that determinist thinking um, that would cause us to say, well, then I don't have any choice. And um, All right, and then we come to the third of the three words. That, that was, so we've done preservation and concurrence. And the last one's the word government. God has a purpose in all that he does in the world, and he providentially governs or directs all things in order that they accomplish his purpose. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 is one... Uh, verse that supports this it says and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and he doeth according to his will and none can stay his hand or none can stop his his hand um, or say unto him what doest thou they can't question it they can't stop it they can't prevent it because he's governing a sovereign god Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord's kingdom ruleth over all. Or on our next slide, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27, for he hath put all things under his feet. So he rules over all things. Then on our next slide, an additional aspect of governance coming from a couple of verses here. So speaking of God, who works all things after the counsel of his own will, he's governing, such that, in Philippians, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's governing over all things. Or we go to our next slide in Romans chapter 8. God is sovereign over all and works his purposes allowing us to know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according uh, to his purpose. Uh, This is how, by the way, it's possible for a Christian to rejoice in evil, rejoice in bad life events, uh, because a sovereign God can work out good in the midst of bad things going on. And so he's able to accomplish that. So let's come back to that determinist thinking. Um, does man have a free will? Okay, we'll ask ourselves as we think about that, like, okay, if everything's just determined, then I, I can't help it, it's just going to happen. Uh, do we have a free will? Okay, and of course, this is one of the questions that comes up in the whole Calvinist-Arminius debate, which we're not going to get into too deeply. But let me just read some statements to you regarding this. Scripture nowhere says that we are free in the sense of being outside of God's control 
or of being able to make decisions that are not caused by anything. So are we completely free to do everything? I don't think most Christians, even those that are, would say, I'm not a Calvinist, I'm an Arminius, don't think usually that they have a free will to do anything that they want. We understand, for example, that when a person sins, they become a slave to sin. Or we understand that man, apart from God, doesn't have the freedom to be a good person. None of our good acts are good. Um, we do not have the ability to come to God for salvation without the help of the Holy Spirit. That we don't naturally desire God. We don't naturally desire to do what's right. We don't have the freedom to just, you know, so we don't just, yeah, as humans, just come and say, oh, I could do evil or good, and just say, I could make the choice and do. We often are slaves to our own passions, to our own weaknesses, uh, to our sin nature. Um, so, so he's uh, basically Grudem is saying that we, the scriptures don't really teach that we have complete freedom to do anything we want to do. Okay, here's the second statement. Nor does scripture say we are free in the sense of being able to do right on our own. Well, I guess I got ahead of myself and really touched on that thought. Um, we can't get outside of God's control, and we can't simply be good people if we want on our own and make that decision. Okay, but he says we are nonetheless free. In the greatest sense that any creature of God could be free, we make willing choices, choices that have real effects. We are aware of no restraints on our will from God when we make decisions. We must insist that we have the power of willing choice, otherwise we will fall into the error of fatalism or determinism, and thus conclude that our choices do not matter or that we cannot uh, really make willing choices. And so there is an aspect, that's why we're we are responsible for the choices that we make because we do willingly make them. Um, but uh, another statement, on the other hand, the kind of freedom that is demanded by those who deny God's providential control of all things, a freedom to be outside of God's sustaining, controlling activity, would be impossible if Jesus Christ is indeed, quote, from Hebrews 1.3, continually carrying along or upholding things by the word of his power. So if we were outside of that, like we didn't have to go along with that if we don't want. No, we're within God's providence and we don't have complete freedom to get out from under God's control. Thus, that one day every knee shall bow. Uh, we're under God's rulership. So here's some in, uh, a summary of some important uh, thoughts regarding human actions. We're, we're still responsible for our actions. Our actions have real results and do not change and do change the course of events. God does allow our actions to influence events. Somehow it's still under his providential control. That's the hard part to understand. But it, uh, that's what the scriptures teach, that our actions do have consequences, and we are responsible for them, even as God is overseeing everything. Okay, prayer is one specific kind of action that has definite results, and that does not change the course of, uh, that does change the course of events. Prayer matters, especially the effectual, effective prayer of a righteous man that avails much. Okay, and another thought, we must act. The doctrine of providence in no way encourages us to sit back in idleness to await the outcome of certain events. We need to actively be making right choices. And then another thought, what if we cannot understand this doctrine fully? Every believer who meditates on God's providence will sooner or later come to a point where he or she will have to say, I cannot understand this doctrine fully. But we still can know what we ought to be doing in life and making right choices. Some additional thoughts. Do not be afraid, but trust God. David was able to sleep in the midst of his enemies because he knew that God's providential control made him dwell in safety. God is in control. And things are not outside his control. Another thought, be thankful for all good things that happen. And there is no such thing as luck or chance in this. Okay, well, we tried to get through that uh, quickly, but um, it is possible to have a peace that passes all understanding because in human terms, some things don't seem like they should be peaceful. And uh, yet, the, I think uh, knowledge of who God is... Um, a lot of his character traits underlie his providence because if we don't trust him to be a good God, then we don't have peace about his providence. If we don't think he knows all things, then we don't have peace about him 
being able to govern when you, it's like our current president of the United States. Or, you know, kind of feel bad for him because when you get older, sometimes your mind slips some. But his mind has slipped some. He doesn't always know what's going on. And that makes it to be a, that, that makes it difficult. You're not sure if he's got things all together at a point. Well, if we don't think God knows all things, same thing. If he's not omniscient, we're not always sure he can really govern things well. Um, so a lot of our confidence in God comes from our knowledge of who he is and the fact that he is ruling, and this is what the scriptures provide to us. Um, so then we can have sleep like David in the midst of a bad situation and not worry and not fret over whether God's going to be able to get good things to happen even if bad things are going on. Uh, of course, we always enjoy it when God accomplishes good things through good events. That's a lot more fun <laughs> for us. But sometimes he does it through bad things too. So um, just having to trust in him. All right, any closing thoughts uh, from anyone in the room? Yeah, and we understand there's none, none who are righteous, no, not one. So even uh, great men and women of God were really only that way because the Lord was working through them. Like that song, Channels Only, yeah. Any other thoughts? Okay, well, let's close our... Oh, you look like you got something. We don't always know what the Lord's up to in allowing some of these things, but you know, be in prayer.